1: welcome delegates all to episode 19 of the delegation game after our change of pace last week which you all seemed to really enjoy r.i.p dinglebrush we now move back to the traditional structure which you've all come to know and love this is our penultimate proper episode as in an episode where new things actually happen but we will be wrapping this bad boy up with some concluding notes and thoughts on the world you all leave behind so stay tuned for that We don't have much to introduce here, though it is worthwhile noting that we will be dealing with several treaties today, as the Hungarian, Bulgarian, nearly the Ottoman, and soon the Austrian will be coming under our microscope. As for the German treaty, we're going to actually save that for the last episode, since even though it's finished, as this episode will show, there are still some unfinished bits of business left over to discuss. In terms of characters, the only real change I can think of is that the Hungarian Countess, Lady Eleonora Chalk, has been swapped out for the King of Hungary, Charles of Habsburg, and the latter is now in attendance at London to wrap things up for his kingdom. How this king among the statesmen will fare is but one element of many in our story today. So, without any further ado, sit back, relax, and open your imagination rather wide as I take you all to this alternative world. <coughs> Gentlemen of the Arbitration Committee, thank you for your patience. It seems we have settled our affairs and are now ready to proceed. Felix Kalender addressed the room, which had since been reserved exclusively for the deliberations of the Arbitration Committee, that body of men tasked with making the final decision on the German peace. In weeks past, much had been learned about the peace treaties for the other powers, and Kalender was concerned that this conference could possibly transform itself into a peace mission for the whole world. At this rate he would never get to go home. Yet there was reason to be positive. The Arbitration Committee had reduced the workload of other bodies, like the Council of Eight and Minor Council, and the peace treaties with Hungary, Bulgaria, and even Germany were to be praised for their ingenuity and tact. Still in the pipeline was the Austrian peace, which Kalender found he was most interested in, and the Ottoman peace treaty, surely an unsolvable mess if there ever was one. Today, while the Arbitration Committee representatives from France, Britain, Spain, Switzerland and Alsace-Lorraine sat, they were joined by three distinguished guests from Russia, Greece and the United States. It was destined to be a busy morning. Bruce Pug, representing the United States, rose first from his seat. Gentlemen, thank you for permitting American representation this morning. I applaud the progress and considerable efforts of this body since its creation a month ago and I welcome any news which... You may be able to give America of the decision on other issues, particularly in the East, where much confusion continues to reign. I trust that the Russian adventure has finally been solved, and we can return to the business at hand? Just then, Dmitri Robotnik interrupted Pug by standing up purposefully. The Russian representative was starkly tall, and had been on an emotional roller coaster over the last few months, which gave him a curiously shrunken appearance. His normally neat moustache had been let go from its binds, and Robotnik was now sporting a beard, which Orthodox monks would have been proud of. Rumour had it, Robotnik swore to shave once Russia was given proper democratic government, but judging by the string of events in that quarter, he would not be shaving for some time. "'I too wish to extend my thanks to this body,' Robotnik began, before continuing." And yet I must issue a word of caution to those present regarding the current situation in my country. It has become common knowledge that the Clemenceau Directive, aimed at rescuing Russia from its Bolshevik prison, has failed. Thankfully, this mission was not a total loss, as it is now well known that the Belgian hero, Generous Dinglebrush and Commander David McKay were saved from disaster, along with 20,000 of their men by General Paul von Leto Vorbeck and his army of 50,000 Freikorps soldiers. While this situation is a positive one, I fear for the future of the region now that the Red Army and Relief Force under Operation Redeemer have been evacuated. My concern is that the Ukraine, traditionally under the influence of the Tsars, might become detached and fall into the Polish or German dominion, thus upsetting the power balance in the region. I also possess grave concerns about the ongoing conflicts between Polish and Ukrainian forces, which have not died down with the upsetting of the Clemenceau Directive. We have heard much of French intentions to create an extended cordon sanitaire in the east, and I beg President Marshal Foch to provide some information now regarding this policy so that it might assuage my concerns. Robotnik sat down with a thud, and the wooden chair groaned under his large frame. Indeed, none of Robotnik's expressions provided much in the way of news to those present. The Clemenceau directive had indeed failed, of that there could be no doubt and it was likely that the President Marshal, who had helped devise it, would be searching for a way to start afresh. This was problematic thanks to the undeniable importance of German soldiers in the rescue and the resulting expectation on the German side that leniency, or perhaps even the potential for major gains, would now be Germany's. Robotnik's more direct inquiries about the extension of the mostly Franco-Polish Continental Defence Accord had to be addressed, though particularly these concerns about Ukraine had the potential to upset it. President Marshal Fosh rose from his chair and moved a collection of documents in front of him as he scanned over them with some speed. Taking a sip of water, he cleared his throat and addressed the issue, keeping his eyes locked firmly on Robotnik as he did so. May I extend my thanks to our esteemed guest for joining us at this crowded hour, Fosh began before continuing. There is indeed... Much to discuss, which the recent failure of the Clemenceau Directive makes necessary. It is undeniable that the hopes of the free men and women of Europe were resting on that mission's success. Its failure calls into question the order and structure of the initiative, as well as the reasons for its failure. I understand that the Minor Council will be addressing that issue later in the day, so I will confine my reply to the Russian gentleman's questions. Monsieur Robotnik, I'm afraid we hold different perspectives regarding the future of Ukraine. The country is falling apart and currently is torn between three factions, none of them strong enough to stand alone. The Nationalists, who seek independence for Ukraine, a feat never achieved, we must note. The Anarchists, who seemingly desire destruction and nothing more. And the Bolsheviks, chastised with the recent expulsion of the Red Army from the country, but no less dangerous because of it. France's primary ally in Poland has been combating these hostile Bolshevik elements since before the conference began and recently Polish forces have been greatly bolstered by the Bolshevik retreat in the area. I have been told that Polish forces under the command of General Pilsudski followed up the successive Operation Redeemer to occupy the remnants of Kiev, where they now reside, reinforced by volunteers and securing their supply lines. In short, I believe it inevitable, and also beneficial, that Ukraine come under the protection of Poland for the foreseeable future. This does not, of course, prevent some form of arrangement in the future whereby Poland, Russia and Ukraine settle their differences. However, in the present situation, I fear the Ukrainian region is acutely dangerous, that it will be a fool's errand to attempt any kind of plebiscite solution. As we have now learned, it is only force that makes the message plain in this area, and democratic Poland, being in possession of this force, seem the most logical party to receive our support. There were some raised eyebrows in the room. It seemed that not everyone was as informed of Polish progress as the President Marshal. Robotnik stood back up again and wasted little time. President Marshal, I am indeed concerned that our perspectives differ considerably. Ukraine is a partner of Russia, and whatever disruptions she has suffered, these will only be aggravated by the Polish presence. I hardly think that a recreation of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to be a valid solution to the problem. I've heard it said that the extension of the Continental Defence Accord further east is your goal, but surely you recognise the dangers implicit in this plan? Indeed I do not, Monsieur Robotnik, Foch replied without bothering to stand. Need I remind you of the legacy, the democratic and nationalistic legacy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth? Why had your ancestors and those of Prussia and Austria not acted like piranhas gobbling up Polish lands? there would still be a Commonwealth today. Whereas Russia has never ventured into the realm of democracy, Poland resided nowhere else, and Poland is an ideal partner for all Western powers to invest in, provided some unfortunate biases among the delegations are overcome. As for the Continental Defence Accord, the purpose of that arrangement was twofold, to prevent German resurgence and to guard against the Bolshevik menace. The Continental Defence Accord seems to have received an unduly large amount of attention, Yet it is no more controversial than the Pact of Cartagena, which France is also a proud member of. If you will allow me, I would also like to propose a further extension towards the east of the Cordon Sanitaire. I believe that in light of recent developments, gentlemen, it is not enough to swap words in these gilded halls. We must make these words transform into action, and the action which is needed is collective agreements to guard against a further expansion of Bolshevism to the west. It has already infected Kiev, Who is to say where it might strike next, or where it could have struck had perceptive statesmen not stepped in in places such as Munich or Budapest? I therefore invite you all today to discuss the creation of this cordon sanitaire, composed of those East European states of Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania and Bulgaria. At this, Sir Alistair Tancred stood up. This is quite a proposal, President Marshall. Tancred began before continuing. I am most concerned with how exactly it will work. We know it to be true that countries in this region harbour resentments and irredentist ambitions towards one another. The examples of Transylvania and Bessarabia come to mind, but there are surely others. I assume that this arrangement will require military support and investment from the West. Yet, if it is destined to fail then should such expenditure really be made in light of the increasing weariness which our countries now feel towards such schemes? My honourable friend makes an excellent point, Antonio Mora, the Spanish Premier, exclaimed. Tancred then returned to his seat, and Robotnik had evidently given up on the meeting altogether, staring resignedly out the window. Antonio Mora, the Spanish Premier, then rose to his feet. I too am concerned of too great an investment in the region. Gentlemen, might it be suggested instead that a formal alliance be erected, whereby the aforementioned states and the region commit to collective defence and nothing more? Perhaps under the overall guidance of France or some other such arrangement. This would significantly reduce the commitment of us other statesmen, but the end result would be virtually the same. France's continental role is much increased by the recent triumph, and as the President-Marshall surely knows, this role comes with additional responsibilities, such as filling the whole left by the collapse of the three powerful empires. I thank Signor Mora for the suggestion, Foch said, still not bothering to stand up. Truly, the Continental Defence Accord and the Cordon Sanitaire which it would produce are largely products of the exemplary relations between Poland and France, so I will consult my Polish friends soon and return to the question in due course. Calender finally got a grip on things. Thank you, President Marshall. Now, gentlemen, I understand we are to hear from the Greek Premier, Monsieur Venizelos. The floor is now yours, sir. Thank you, gentlemen, Venizelos said, rising to his feet now. The situation is grave indeed, my friends. A quick survey of recent history will show that Greece has always supported democracy and the cause of freedom, wherever it was fought for. Now though, in light of recent developments around the city of Smyrna, Greece requires the help of her allies. The situation in Anatolia can be summed up in a single word. Barbarism. Barbarism is what we Greeks rally against, and barbarism is the culture which has ruled over this region for so many terrible centuries. Who among us, gentlemen, knows a good Turk? I fear that if we are not careful, a repetition of previous horrors will befall us in Smyrna. The city is Greek in custom and culture, not to mention language, but the lands surrounding it vary as the Turks have done their work brainwashing the local people into following their orders. Everywhere terrible lies are spread about the Greek soldiery and atrocities are blamed upon them. I think I speak for all peace-loving Greeks everywhere when I state for the record that in the last five centuries it has been the Turks who have thirsted for our blood and sought to ruin our livelihoods. It is time to set the record straight now while we are in a peace-loving mood. We must rectify this imbalance and parcel up the region among the great powers. We must crush the forces of radical Turkism under our heel, or else it will rise again, an even more brutal and terrible incarnation. Already we hear words of nationalists mobilising for our destruction. The spheres of interest in the Straits and around Smyrna must be protected, and unfortunately they can only be protected by good investments and sound decisions. This is not an easy situation to resolve, I will admit, but the fruits of your labours will be considerable should you succeed, as you will put, under the control of civilization, a race which has never known decency or democracy in its tenure. You will change the course of history, gentlemen, and for much the better. Sir Alistair Tankred shifted uncomfortably in his seat before speaking with some apprehension. Thank you, Monsieur Venizelos, for your speech. You know that I have the utmost respect for you and your activism, but are you seriously suggesting the extinguishing of the Turkish nation from the map of Europe? Oh no, Sir Alistair, Venizelos replied. I am merely urging those present to determine that Turks must be civilised before they are fit to rule again. The best practice for installing this civilization is through a mandate, which I believe the United States would be best placed to hold. Then, in God's good time, when the Turk has learned... How to rule, without barbarity or injustice, he will be entitled to rule that portion of land where true Turks, and not merely oppressed peoples, are proud to reside. That is quite the proposition, Monsieur Venizelos, said Bruce Pug, who was seated across from him at the large, polished oak table. The American delegation will require considerable time to debate this idea. Rest assured, America will do all it can for Greece and the Civilising Greek mission, I wish to ensure that your country never lives in fear of the barbaric Turk ever again. Venizelos then sat down, evidently satisfied that he had set his peace, and placed some kernel of a plan in the minds of the peacemakers. Charles Shear, who had been patiently biding his time, then rose to his feet, as though expecting to be interrupted as he did so. When no challenges were mounted, Kalender signalled to the Alsatian that the floor was his, Charles Scheer took a deep breath and began. Thank you, gentlemen, for your enlightening proposals and presentations. There is much to recommend them, and there remains much to discuss. You have surely heard it said that the German peace treaty will be signed next week, on Friday the 28th of June, a full five years since the terrible events of Franz Ferdinand's assassination were carried out. This reminds us of our duty to that region of the world, and unfortunately it is with regret but I must note how terribly it has suffered. To summarise, for those unfamiliar with the Balkan situation, Yugoslavia was created under a cloud of mystery and threat, and a fait accompli was presented to us in the conference in January. Some months later, an Italian-sponsored uprising captured the imagination of Croats, Bosnians and Slovenians. While aided by the Italian government, there could be no denying the agency of those peoples on the ground and the apprehension they felt for their Serbian overlords. It was, too, the great misfortune of these smaller nations to have been burdened by the demands of Belgrade. And now we must consider further demands, but from an altogether different quarter. Currently, Slovenia and Croatia exist under a protectorate from Rome, an arrangement which will help secure that quarter from further Serbian attack and protect the genuine culture and linguistic difference of the region. However, I have since heard that the King of Hungary, Charles of Habsburg, wishes to install his sons on these republican statelets, where our own former friend, Mr. Karhu Rosnak, now rules as Premier of Slovenia, for instance. Such a situation would be intolerable to these governments, as the Habsburg dynasty is in no position to expand its influence, nor does it deserve to following the recent war. Indeed, it would be akin to welcoming a Hohenzollern prince back to Alsace. I believe that it would be preferable to keep this region as sovereign as possible, though I am open to suggestions from the floor. Felix Kalander then rose to his feet to address the room. I too have heard this plot being put about, gentlemen, and I would welcome the opinions of those present today. Before he had even taken a breath, Foch was offering his view, still seated of course. It seems simple enough, gentlemen, Foch said. Surely a member of the enemy camp deserves no sympathy or advantage. Why, I understand that the status of Bavaria is to be considered later, in an additional meeting of the great powers, owing to Germany's aid in the recent Operation Redeemer. What, I may ask, has Hungary given us allied powers, that her dynasty believes it is in a position to make any kind of requests? President Marshall, Antonio Mora interjected, without attempting to sound too forward, I believe that King Charles of Habsburg is present in a private suite. Perhaps it would be appropriate to ask this ruler his position? He is, after all, a man of royal rank, regardless of his recent status, and is deserving of our respect. From the corner of the room, a once quiet Dmitri Robotnik suddenly spoke up. Gentlemen, I am about to go next door to the Minor Council, and while there I will inquire further about the status of the Croatian and Slovene monarchs. Rest assured, justice will be done. I am in no mood to provide mercy where none is due. President Marshal Foch nodded in Robotnik's direction, and Kalender rose to close the meeting. Thank you, members of the Arbitration Committee. I look forward to hosting again during the week, when we will put the finishing touches on this peace treaty at long last. Good luck, gentlemen, and Godspeed. The noise levels had already become deafening by the time Robotnik entered the room, As the conference was plainly drawing to its end, it seemed that this minor council, once designed to house all those powers who did not have a seat at the Great Power Table, or at the Arbitration Committee for that matter, had become incredibly inefficient. Still, it could be of use on occasion for measuring the mood of the conference. As was usually the case, unfortunately, the mood was hostile today though, supercharged by the still ongoing hostility between the Romanian and Hungarian representatives. Romanian Premier Ioan Bratianu, surrounded by a cloud of smoke which he continued to add to, was certainly at the disadvantage. His snide remarks, which had once been directed towards Lady Nora Chok, would be of no use against the formidable and well-liked King Charles of Habsburg. Bratianu even seemed somewhat intimidated by the Habsburg King of Hungary, who had led Austria-Hungary as Emperor from late 1916. Now, with his new gig as monarch of the reduced Rump-Hungarian Kingdom, Charles appeared to be angling for an increase in his influence, and it was making Bratianu nervous. Dimitri Robotnik quietly took his seat at the end of the table, a table which stretched the length of the room. Facing each other was the standing Romanian premier and the seated Habsburg king of Hungary, but the latter was bound not to stay seated for long. Gentlemen, I urge you all to consider what is being asked, not only of us victorious parties, but also of Romania today. It is terminally unjust that His Majesty King Charles should be entitled to request the successions of his sons to the Balkan republics of Slovenia and Croatia. Neither republic have ever shown any enthusiasm for such successions, and the act of rewarding a hostile power in the peace seems to me to be the height of folly. Charles of Habsburg then stood up, and Bratianu seemed to be pondering, continuing on in his speech, in the face of this standing king but then he thought better of it and sat down. Charles glanced around the room, and his eyes met momentarily with Robotnik's. Robotnik glared back at him. He was in no mood to play ball with this ridiculous scheme. He didn't care whether he was a king or not. There was no way the Habsburg family should be permitted to increase their portfolio after what they'd done to Russia in the recent war. Charles cleared his throat and said, I understand the opposition which this suggestion has aroused among my honourable friends. As a participant in the recent war, I know that I will never forget the horrors of battle, or the scars which these horrors inflict. I have commanded men in battle, most notably my beloved Twenty Corps in spring 1916, and I know too that war makes men hungry afterwards for some way to find significance in the loss. From the beginning, I had always urged my people to accept Croatia as a third pillar of the Empire. I had always believed, and still do, that the future of the Habsburg dynasty resides in the Balkans, and that with her guidance, the Balkan peoples can be freed of their terrible past. You will note that Croats, Slovenes, and Bosnians all fought on the side of the Habsburg family, and I would hazard to guess, friends, that support for the erection of some pillar of my dynasty in Zagreb. For the longest time, the kingdoms of Slovenia and Croatia were ruled from Vienna. Such facts may no longer seem relevant but I believe it worthwhile that such histories be considered. Robotnik, without consideration of ceremony or even, really, manners, rose quickly to his feet. Evidently the last three weeks had changed him and made him more callous, but he doubted that interrupting this delusional Habsburg king would alienate him from his friends. Most just wanted the whole thing to be over and done with. The king of Hungary is mistaken, I am afraid, Robotnik began provoking gasps and awkward coughs from those seated at the table. King Charles went scarlet. I have recently been conversing with the Arbitration Committee, and can tell you all now that there is no mood in that council, or any other, for giving Hungary or its late Habsburg dynasty some form of reward. These republics should remain republics. For once, I find myself in agreement with Monsieur Bratianu, Bratian's expression went from smug satisfaction to confused concern when he absorbed the gist of what Robotnik had said. It wasn't exactly a compliment that took a suggestion this radical for him to agree with the Romanian Premier. Before the matter could be discussed further though, Pederevsky, the Polish Premier, rose to his feet. Gentlemen, before this issue occupies any more of our time, I wish to emphasise a very important fact about the current border between Ukraine and Poland. I've heard troubling rumours that that Poland is coming under considerable blame for the state of affairs in the region, and I believe that it is time, in my capacity as Premier of Poland, to set the record straight. Currently, my friend General Pilsudski fights against unruly elements in the Ukrainian border regions. This area, the Wild Lands, is just as chaotic and dangerous as it was in the 17th century, where Polish, Ruthenian and Lithuanian peoples lived side by side under one commonwealth. What is more, with the evacuation of the Red Army and the forces under the Clemenceau Directive, I fear Ukraine has become prey to its three distinct factions, none of whom are strong enough to control the country. In the meantime, rebels and bandits pour over the border into Poland and engage in the most heinous practices. In the past, it has become fashionable to point to Poland as an unstable nation-state. My friends, Poland is a poor example of this, and always has been. A true exhibit of this danger can now be found in Ukraine and as the closest and most vulnerable power to its danger.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
1: Robotnik felt an urge to intervene and offer the Russian perspective, but he held off for the moment. I wish to add my support to the Polish gentleman, came Premier Poincaré's voice from the edge of the table. The French Premier had been mostly reading the newspaper, and he hadn't paid much attention to what he regarded as representatives considerably below the rank of France. Yet he had still seen fit to travel to this room and watch this minor council debate. Evidently, Poincaré expected something important to be moved today and he seemed to think that this was it, his Polish premier. Already, Poincaré had been clued in as to what the President-Marshal was planning. It was nothing less than a complete expansion of the Continental Defence Accord, rooted in a Franco-Polish agreement and extended to most of Eastern Europe. Directed against any potential troubles from Russia or Germany, this cordon sanitaire would serve to keep Europe safe, not only from a revanchist German threat, but also from Bolshevism. Poland, Poincaré boomed, forms an integral part of the solid political and military wall which is necessary to build against this continent's two great dangers, Bolshevism and German revanchism. Nobody can say where either will strike next, if indeed they are gone for good. However, nobody will tell me after this Herculean effort that France does not deserve some security. She has it with the Cartagena Pact, which guarantees her territory and compels Spain and Britain to come to her aid. To ignore Eastern Europe at such a time as this, though, would be tantamount to madness. Madness, too, would be to imagine that the Ukrainians, who only recently slaughtered our countrymen and many others besides, are capable of self-government. Poland has a proud history of this, but the record will show that Ukraine does not. Only hordes of Cossacks, tamed by these very Poles, are contained in their legacy. I'm not willing to admit these hordes' access to our civilization any time soon, and so I'm recommending we stand in support with Poland, militarily and politically. Poincaré returned to his paper then, having enjoyed the full attention of the star-struck room. Normally the minor council would have resembled little more than a sparring match between Romanian and Hungarian delegates. Now, evidently, the situation demanded representation of the major powers on all forums. If they could not control the decisions of the minor powers, then they would at least let it be known where France's and the other major powers Red lines resided. Poincaré's satisfaction turned to shock, though, and gasps were heard throughout the room when the next figure stood up to speak. It was none other than British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, a notorious Polonophobe. Truly, Monsieur Poincaré, you know of my respect for you and your record of service to France, but I must contest your central point, which argues for Polish aggrandizement at the expense of her neighbours. Whatever small whispers had been heard had now completely died down. Lloyd George walked alongside the table rather than taking a seat, as he was in full command of this room, and he knew it. Furthermore, the Prime Minister said, we do not even know the full extent of what Poland wants. Monsieur Paderewski, who I would never speak ill of as long as I live, has not been able to clarify Poland's end goal. Does Poland want Danzig? Does she seek to threaten the peace of Europe by carving a path to the sea? as per that crooked 13th point. Do her statesmen recognise the danger in separating Germans from one another? Why, he would be guaranteed to have a war between Poles and Germans within a decade or less. Consider the great sacrifices which Germans have made for Polish, as well as European civilization in the recent operations. I'm not comfortable with the suggestion that, in addition to the Rhineland, Bavaria, her colonies and many more items besides, this German Republic... Will be destined to lose or be separated from these East Prussians as well. Mr. Lloyd George, interjected Paderewski, evidently unintimidated by the Prime Minister's swagger, I regret that we have emerged on opposite sides, but I do not believe this situation is permanent. What Poland wants is to protect her borders and therefore erect a protectorate over the Ukraine, as this would prevent that rupturing state from spilling its iniquities into Poland proper. As far as Danzig is concerned, pending an agreement between the Polish, German and Allied governments, we would like to see some measure of a shared solution for this state. Need I remind you, Prime Minister, that France has got her Rhineland, Italy has her Fiume and more besides. Why, in that case, has Poland not been reunited with her most populous and prosperous port city? I believe it is because such a concession would be inconvenient to make. But this is a situation which must be settled and Poland will be unable to sign the peace until it is. Monsieur Paderewski, piped up Vittorio Orlando, now looking significantly more relaxed since the resolution of Italy's troubles. Is it not the case that Poland has a treaty with Germany considering its eastern border? This region has already received much attention already, and I do not see the value in returning to the issue again. Paderewski sighed loudly before adjusting his tie and standing up, his chair nearly falling backwards with the force. I appreciate your concern, Signor Orlando, but I really must impress upon everyone today the gravity of Poland's situation. She is pressed from all sides and stands as the first line of defence against the Bolsheviks. Considering this, I believe it vital that potential trouble spots be resolved. We are not asking for unilateral control over Danzig, though we would be within our rights to do so. Instead, we are simply requesting that an arrangement regarding that city be reached, so that Poland's lack of access to the sea, a historical inaccuracy for sure, be remedied. Some murmuring followed. Lloyd George was evidently miffed that he had not been able to force everyone to listen to his anti-Polish diatribe. Monsieur Paderewski said Edward Benes, who many forgot was even in the room. I believe that this is a serious issue, and I believe that some time should be spent attending to it next week, before the German peace is signed. Whatever agreements are reached can be inserted as appendices. I believe the Germans will adhere to a reasonable decision. Now hold on there, Monsieur Benesh, came a distinctly accented voice, seated beside Bratianu. It was Louis Botha, the South African statesman. If we begin reopening the German treaty now, Does it not follow that Germany will request her colonies back? Need I remind you the terrible crimes she has only recently committed against the African natives? It was then up to Arthur McAulville from Newfoundland to offer some sense in place of his Dominion colleague. Forgive me, Mr Botha, but I do not believe that Mr Paderewski was suggesting that all elements of the German treaty be examined, just those parts which directly govern the contentious border territory. I do not think anyone would dispute that Germany is quite unfit to govern its old colleagues. However, and if you will forgive me, Prime Minister, I do think that in the limited time we have left, we ought to reach compromises wherever possible. Later tonight, many of our colleagues will be present for a plenary hearing of the peace treaty as it stands so far, and the Germans will be in attendance. Perhaps this will be a good time to raise the issue of the contentious border. Certainly, if it means this much to Poland, a conversation will hardly cost us much. Paderewski nodded a thank you in McAulville's direction, and McAulville sat down gracefully. Lloyd George gritted his teeth. Those foolish fishmongers from Newfoundland were going to ruin the chance for peace in a continent they didn't even live in. The Prime Minister looked at his watch. Indeed, he had a meeting of the Council of Eight to get to. Many other colleagues and delegates would be in attendance to hear the latest developments in the German treaty and offer their suggestions, but the most notable guests would be the Germans. were sure to have something of their own to say. Lloyd George looked around the room. Some of these men had been with the conference since the beginning, when it had lumbered through Paris from one hotel to the next, before coming to a stop here in this fabulous estate near London. Their body of work had been impressive, but was it enough to prevent a repeat of this terrible war? Perhaps these answers would be in hand by the time the day was out. A square table, with two seats on each side, loomed into view. This was the Council of Eight, the body supposedly composed of the great powers, but shorn of much influence since the events of the Parisian riots, whereupon Foch's five pillars altered the conference's structure. Here, the Council of Eight was meeting to consider the latest developments in the ongoing saga of the German treaty. Due to the pressure exerted by the Americans in particular, it was decided to invite the Germans into the room, and recite the treaty's details to them piece by piece. Then, once this task was accomplished, the Germans would be allowed to speak, as would the other representatives, who had just been allotted guest seats in the back row. Mostly, these were tired delegates from earlier in the day, such as the East Europeans, but also the Dominions, who were well represented. Everyone was a little bit on edge, and they had taken their seats at 5pm on the 23rd of June, when the eight key representatives of the Great Powers walked in. At the table of the Council of Eight. For Britain was Arthur Fitzwilliam and David Lloyd George. For France, President Marshal Foch and Rene Missigli. For Japan, Baron Makino Nabuaki and Prince Sione. For America, Teddy Roosevelt and Walter Cameron. The men took their seats as Felix Kalender presided once again. The man's voice had become weak with the day's conversations. One last great push Kalender had told himself and all would be finished. After the nods from the eight, in walked General Paul von Leto Vorbeck, Chancellor Philipp Scheidemann and Bavarian Chancellor Johann Hoffmann. Chancellor Karl Renner was absent from this intimidating process, owing to the failure of the Allies so far to devise an Austrian treaty. However, while he was not on trial per se, for solidarity's sake, Renner had said, he sat in the back row with the other minor delegates. These three Germans sat in a specially placed row of chairs, in between the square table and the row of minor attending delegates. The impression may have been intended to make them feel like they were between a rock and a hard place, as the glares and stares from both sides rained down. However, the Germans did not flinch. The treaty was read out, and all three men furiously took notes. It was a blistering process, necessarily so, for time had ticked rapidly by over the last few weeks, and little time had been set aside to prepare for this part of the journey. The process, notwithstanding this haste, took some time though, because even with the quick pace that they were trying to emulate, a French and English version was provided for each article of this treaty. Some men in the room were exchanging glances when certain points of the treaty were read out. Evidently they were unhappy or unfamiliar with some aspects. The weight of anticipation was overwhelming especially as attention was being paid to the mound of notes which the German secretary was preparing. Then the process came to a halt, and a heavy silence crept into the room. Felix Kalender attempted to break the silence, but he found that his voice had effectively given up. He shook his head, as if the whole day had finished him, and he gestured to Teddy Roosevelt, who stood up at his square table of VIPs, and turned to face the German and Allied delegates behind them, saying... Thank you, Monsieur Kalender. I trust now you will be able to get some rest. Representatives of Germany, I welcome you to this process, and Chancellor Renner of Austria, thank you kindly for joining us too. You have been informed of the process here today, I am told. Presently, you may not alter this peace treaty. This is the prerogative only of the Council of Eight, or Arbitration Committee, or these bodies jointly. However, you may ask questions and pose suggestions. Behind you sit the representatives of other great nations whose interests are represented in this treaty as well, while before you sit the great powers of Japan, France, Britain and the United States. Since Monsieur Calender is incapacitated, I offer my subordinate, Mr. Joseph Zand, to serve as the intermediary. Gentlemen of Germany, Mr. Zand speaks excellent German and will accommodate you wherever possible. It has been a long day already, my friends, but It is the belief of us all present that this process will go some way towards healing the considerable rift between our two camps. As we all know, and as I learned myself when earning a Nobel Peace Prize a decade ago, it is more than simply making a treaty, it is also about making amends. Gentlemen, I hope that making amends will be a mission not outside the realm of possibility today. Thank you. Some light applause followed this speech, and Joseph Zahn walked gingerly to the seat where Felix Kalander had been sitting. The two men shook hands, and a light applause was given for Kalander as well, who appeared worn out in face as well as voice. Zan sat down in the chair and sifted quickly through the notes, and he cleared his throat. First to speak is Monsieur René Messigli, Minister of State for France and former Premier. On cue, Miss rose from his chair. He looked around the room with a mixture of anxiety and grim determination on his face. It was hard for the Germans to gauge what he was about to say, which was exactly how Miss liked it. Thank you, Mr. Zahn. Gentlemen of the Allied Nations and gentlemen of Germany, you bring me great honour by gathering to bring this war with an end, and further honour by providing me with such a platform as this. It is a mark of our great civilization that in spite of our terrible war, French and German statesmen can sit in the same room as one another and talk about peace. Yet I must emphasise this to my German friends. This is not a negotiation process. We will not hear objections or reservations to our peace treaty. All we will accept are suggestions. You have no power here, gentlemen of Germany. This is a blunt thing to say, but the laws of war and peace make it so. It must also be so that the losing party pays the highest price, as it was for France in 1871. Remember, gentlemen of Germany, that this conflict between our peoples is not an easy quarrel to solve. It can only be resolved through understanding and the proper admittance of guilt. In 1871, when the French people were required to swallow their pride and accept their responsibility for Napoleon III's crimes, we adhered to such principles. I sincerely hope that the German gentlemen before me do not harbour thoughts of manipulation or deceit. We wish to deal with you honourably, but we will, if it proves necessary, Resume this war and drive home the ruin to German people of all ages. Please do not mistake our politeness for weakness. Please do what is necessary for the preservation of peace in Europe and the world. And sign this treaty next week on the 28th of June without reservation. The law dictates that Germany be given a chance to offer suggestions. But, recall, the law also states that the Allied parties are not required to heed such suggestions. Thank you. Messigli couldn't help but feel that he nailed it. While they had long moved past such things, the fact that he had maintained a tough, solid exterior while the man who had toppled his premiership was seated next to him did not do any harm. Foch had long since apologised and compensated Messigli, but the human being within Messigli was greatly satisfied that Foch had been present to see such a logical, reasonable, firm, and statesmanlike presentation. Foch simply nodded to Messigli a good job and Massigley wore a smug smile for the rest of the meeting on his face. Well, for most of the meeting anyway. The next few minutes were a blur of brief questions and representations. The Germans wanted to know whether they would be entitled to join the Continental Defence Accord against the Bolsheviks, whether they'd be entitled to negotiate their reparations bill, whether they could join other agreements like the Pact of Cartagena. Germany, Scheidemann insisted, had learned its lesson and did not need to have the blame for the war placed upon her shoulders. General Paul von Leto spoke briefly about his experiences in Kiev for Operation Redeemer and made a passionate plea to his Polish counterpart, Pilsudski, who was absent, and Paderewski, who was seated six feet away, not to see Germany as the enemy of Poland. Russia, von Leto emphasized, was the traditional, hereditary enemy of Poland and Germany alike, and the situation in Russia now necessitated a strong bond between Germans and Poles. Most strikingly, von Edo Vorbeck indicated that he would be willing to talk about the Polish Corridor and the creation of some kind of multinational committee in Danzig designed to keep the city open for Poland. However, von Leto Vorbeck indicated that he was worried about handing it over to Poland in its entirety, and he expressed his concerns about Upper Silesia, which was currently suffering from revolts, bringing it back towards the positive Von Lidoworbeck then praised Paderewski for his activism in securing the frontier with Ukraine, and he expressed his hope that a protectorate over Ukraine would solve the troubles of the region. Von Vorbeck's speech amounted to nothing less than support for a reborn Commonwealth, and his colleagues were evidently of the same mind. This made the Polish situation much more amenable to a solution by next week, but then Johann Hoffmann spoke up. Gentlemen, I speak for Bavaria. Lately we have heard much talk of Bavaria and the Bavarian people. What you must know, Boval, is that Bavaria is made up of Germans. However imperfectly we express ourselves. Bavaria is a proud and significant kingdom, ruled by the prestigious Wittelsbachs for nearly a thousand years. Our dear king left too early, and I urge the Allied powers to consider whether it would be possible to see him returned. In addition, the separation of Bavaria from Prussian Germany does not necessarily have to result in conflict. I am at odds with my two colleagues on this issue, being a Bavarian separatist myself. However, as far as I can judge, I see two possibilities. First, the hosting of a plebiscite to determine Bavaria's future, where citizens living within the borders of the kingdom, as previously agreed, will vote on a fair and secret ballot. Failing this, the second option could be for Bavaria to remain independent for a set number of years, similar to the Rhineland situation. After such time expires, the Bavarian people could then vote on their future, Gentlemen, I have not seen Mr. Woodrow Wilson since arriving for this conference, but I have been told that it was his intention that people should not be forced apart under alien governments. I hope you will heed these requests. More murmuring followed, and Joseph Zahn permitted other delegates to speak. The Indian prince, Ganges Singh, spoke for several minutes about the rights of subject peoples, like Indians and Africans little avail. Colonies remained an accepted part of the international system, and no European was willing to give them up without a considerable fight now. One visitor of note was General David McKay, who announced his intention to give a brief account of the events at Kiev, so that those in the room would be able to listen both of the importance of Germany's contribution and of the dangers of the Red Army. Chancellor Scheidemann hoped this would help the German case, but from General McKay's appearance, Paul van Leto-Vorbeck could tell that the Australian just wanted to go home. He had come here out of a sense of duty, perhaps, to urge a measure of restraint on the German people, considering their recent sacrifices, but such a message was difficult for the Council of Eight to absorb. Where should they apply this leniency? Massigley asked. McKay replied that he did not know, but that engendering hostility was a surefire way to renew the war. This time, McKay loudly proclaimed, he would not be fighting in this war. It was as McKay was finishing his speech and returning to his seat that a technician burst through the door. Running towards the British Prime Minister, he whispered briskly in the ears of the two British representatives. The eyes of the two men widened. Just what was this news? Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam did not leave everyone in suspense for long. He rose from his seat and boomed as loudly as he could. I have just been informed that the Soviet leader, Vladimir Lenin, Has been found dead. Killed, it is suspected by assassins. Several gasps, followed by loud conversations, followed. So the rumours were true, mouthed several uninformed delegates. Paul van Leto-Vorbeck glanced around the room, and his eyes met with those of the confused McKay. The Australian evidently suspected that this old Prussian younger knew something about the scheme, but van Leto-Vorbeck wasn't telling. Up in a rear seat, Von Leto Vorbeck spotted Arthur McAulville and Owen Lynde, looking far too pleased with themselves. Von Leto Vorbeck's eyes locked with those of McAulville, and the Newfoundlander went so far as to give him a wink. So it had worked then. The escort, which Von Leto Vorbeck had provided for the assassins, had paid off. But had they made it out afterwards? Foch made no attempt at all to hide his satisfaction. "'Gentlemen, we should drink a toast in another time, perhaps,' For this is great news indeed. Soon Russia will return to civilization. Soon she will be welcomed back into our concert as before. Petersky's face told a different story. This news was to be welcomed, for the Bolsheviks would now be severely neutered and would collapse into civil war as rival Bolshevik leaders duped it out. And yet it was also somewhat unsettling. There was no way of guaranteeing that whomever succeeded Lenin or whatever succeeded Lenin would not be worse than what had come before. Somehow as well, he was at pains to deny the most fearfully whispered rumour already doing the rounds. The identity of the assassins, it was said, could never be known, and were not even known by the most powerful men in the room. So suspicious of Bolshevik spies had these assassins been, it was said that their names, their true appearance, their family ties, and even their nationality were kept as secrets. Paderewski had to marvel at the power of the rumour mill, though he admitted the truth was far more incredible as the question was not who, but whom, and the answer was scarcely fathomable. Paderewski's eyes connected briefly with von Leto Vorbeck, who looked quickly away. So it was true then, von Leto Vorbeck knew the assassin's identity as well. They were talking about a dead man, a man condemned long before, a man who had no other choice but to venture to Moscow on this suicide mission. No one else would have agreed to the mission, no one else would have been willing to risk it. It had been a simple trade, Lenin's life in exchange for his freedom. Patereski couldn't help himself. He whispered the name under his breath. Pavel Labova, he said, his lips barely moving, his head shaking. He could hardly believe that it was possible, but that mad pole had done it. After all. <laughs> And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. Hope you enjoy that little twist at the end there, as Mr. Pavel Lebova has landed the killing blow on Lenin after being turned in interrogation and marching all the way to Moscow in exchange for his freedom. What do you mean this opens up a load of plot holes? You're out of line. As out of line as the Germans, perhaps? Well, that's up to you to decide, as the fate of Bavaria comes into question following the events of Operation Redeemer. Should Bavaria be given a plebiscite now, in 15 years' time, Remain independent, or none of the above. Your vote is what counts, and what will shape this alternative world, but that's not all. I want you dear delegates to work hard this week, ironing out the final cracks of this German peace. As far as I'm aware, we're dealing with the third draft of the treaty, but we need to add in the latest adjustments, such as the compromises between Italy and Spain, before we can call the treaty complete. I hope you're up to the challenge, dear delegates. After all you've come this far. And this will be the last week that I ask you to actually do anything. With all that being said then, my name is Zach and I've been your Delegation Master. This has been the penultimate episode of the Delegation Game. Join me next week for the final episode, episode 20, where we see just how much of a mess you have all truly made. Thanks for joining and I'll be seeing you all soon.